0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent to me by email at AskChrisShelton at gmail.com. If you want questions to get to me, send them to me by email. If you leave them in the comments section, I may or may not see them or may or may not remember to put them into my questions queue. Uh, But if you email them, I will always get them. All right. So I really hope you guys will check out the podcast that um, Clint Haycock and I did this week about the uh, Lifton, Robert J. Lifton, who wrote uh, this amazing book called Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism, his seminal work on cults and what cults are all about, really helped me sort out a lot of stuff with Scientology. He's got eight criteria, eight points that he uses in, in uh, talking about or describing uh, totalitarian or thought reform situations like destructive cults. And we actually walk through all of those eight points and the psychological effects of them on Scientologists, on Evangelicals, on people in destructive cults, and I thought we did a a real bang-up job. We were very thorough, it took us a while to get through that podcast, but it was time well spent and I hope you guys will check it out. All right, and I wanted to, you know, I always sort of plug something at the beginning of my shows here, and this week it's not going to be any exception. Um, I wanted to let you guys know, you know, we've gotten so many new subscribers, new Patreon supporters, new people coming around and watching my content, and I realized that I don't plug this really often enough, and that is my book. I wrote a book. It's called Scientology A to Z New, and it is a critical analysis of Scientology. It is not just my memoir. And I always sort of put that out there because I don't want people thinking it's just, just you know, you're going to read all about me. I'm just in the first chapter. The rest of the book is all about Scientology itself as a subject. And I think that, um, you know, I've gotten pretty good reviews on it. People seem to like the book. So I just thought I'd plug it out there for those of you who don't know it exists. You can get, uh, you can get it on Amazon. Link is below as well as uh, links to other Uh, fun goodies that I've been putting together over the years to help support this channel and give something back to you guys in the process. So that all being said, let's go ahead and get on with your questions because we have some interesting ones this week. Italian vapor. I've noticed some pictures of the Sea Org where they're wearing blues, sometimes wearing whites. My father was in the Naval Reserve. He had winter blues and summer whites for his dress uniforms. As you were traveling to cool and warmer assignments, did you have both? Hey, thanks for the question. Um, in the <laughs> I think I talked about uniforms last week, too, and how we hardly ever had uniform parts or very many of them. Um, and I think this might speak to why it was that we didn't have blues and whites uh, on land where we were at. In the pack base, um, you know the big blue complex. It was mostly dress blues. We had the blue uniforms, the, uh, and this was mostly for the management people. They had uniforms put together that were non, not really totally naval. They had naval coloring, but not you know in terms of uh, shades of blue and white and black. But they didn't have um, you know the full class A look that you see when you see me in dress uniform or CCOrg members in dress blues. Um, for uh, Flag in Clearwater, where the, the, the climate is much more tropical and, and humid, and on the free winds, they would have dress whites. And also, interestingly, the guys at International Management, when they did their Sea Org days, also had dress white uniforms, not dress blues. I really could never tell you what the arbitrary decision point was on why it was decided one for one group of people and why, you know, whites for another, um, but we were happy about that because whites are incredibly, uh, horribly difficult to keep clean as we heard from our friends who had to wear the whites. you know They were like, oh God, yeah, those things are horrible because keeping them clean is such a nightmare. So uh, so we, weren't, we didn't feel like we were suffering from lack of having whites and blues. I think I remember a couple of times we talked about how sharp they looked and we thought they looked better than blues, but we were happy to not have to deal with them. Blake Nestle, let me start by once again stating how impressed I am with both the quality and volume of your work. It is truly an inspiration. Now, on to my question. In my adulthood, I've tempered the ideological zeal that defined my teen and 20s years and become what I believe to be a run-of-the-mill moderate. My thoughts on contentious issues tend to fall evenly on both sides of the tribal divide, erring on the side of individual liberty over collective safety. I believe the expression is I want log-cabin homosexual couples to be able to protect their cannabis plants with registered firearms. As an American with 2020 approaching, I consider our nation's political trajectory. I do not like the orange man, but I do not hate him either. I look to the viable alternative options as a person supportive of individual liberty with great disappointment. Save for candidates the American left would seemingly never rally behind in spite of being completely congruent with their ideology, Gabbard Yang, I have heard each of these people, some of whom, sadly enough, were once members of our justice system, talk exuberantly about violating the constitutional right to own firearms. I'll disclose some personal details in hopes of revealing my bias without being boring. I grew up with a father who taught me and my sister to shoot. I learned invaluable lessons about the cycle of nature and that being charitable didn't just feel good, but that it did good as well. Those lessons still inform my decision today as a man who believes we humans are custodians of this earth and seeing as it has been so good to us, we have a duty to be good to it. As an adult, I've lived in Oakland, Los Angeles, and San Diego and seen firsthand the dearth of crime that occurs and how desperately needed self-defense is. My sister may be nearly six feet tall and capable of handling herself, however, I can be intellectually honest in saying that against a man of comparable or greater size, she would have a real issue in defending herself. How can I in good conscience vote for a person who would actively work towards making self-defense for such a person more difficult? Moreover, the logic behind further gun ownership regulation just isn't there. If guns were the X factor in violent crime, then the country with the most guns would have the greatest violent crime rate. If guns were the X factor in suicides, then the country with the greatest gun ownership would also have the greatest suicide rate. Neither of the former is true, and the legislation that's being proposed seems to be aimed at a type of firearm used in a statistically minute amount of the crime they aim to prevent. All in all, this doesn't look like the state providing for the general welfare. It looks like a power grab under the guise of compassion. Thoughts? Okay, Blake, this is a really, really big topic. I have actually done entire podcasts talking about this topic, and my views over time have changed as well. And this is one of the things that I'll just kind of plug about critical thinking is that it gives you the freedom to change your mind. And not have to stay stuck in one position as you consider or reconsider different people's points of view and different information that you get from history or from law or, or sociology or wherever that's going to inform your decision-making process. So I hope that I won't be viewed as some big hypocrite because I say one thing one time and say something another time. I'll be viewed as a hypocrite anyway, but it's, it's all in good fun. Um Okay, so I'm going to make this short. I'm going to get right to the point on this because it is a big topic, and I get your point. If And it, and you, as you said at the beginning of your question, you have defined your bias as being more towards uh, individual liberty than, you know, than, again, social good uh, or social welfare, I think you said. Um, so um, I'm going to say that I tend to bias maybe in the direction of social good more so than individual liberty. I'm willing to put curbs or regulations on individual liberty for the greater good. I think all of us are. It's really just a matter of where do we draw the line in the sand as to what is and isn't acceptable for us as individuals. And we all have different takes and ideas about this. All of us do, right? So we end up having to go with, well, what does the collective say? Because we really you know, because some of our individual ideas and decisions are so radically different that there's no middle ground that we can comfortably find, and so we have to go with the with the common vote, which itself tells us that we're willing to cede certain individual rights for, again, the common good. And on that note, what I'll say here is that what I would like to see put forward in terms of... Um, You know, I'm just—I'm going to go right to the solution. There's a lot of background to why I think this, um, including the fact that the Second Amendment does exist, and I'm not particularly pushing to repeal it or take it away or cancel it. That's not my position at this time. So. And it has been in the past. I have seriously considered whether the Second Amendment is something we really should have. And I know uh, and could make probably some decent arguments as to why we should get rid of it. But I also know that pragmatically or practically speaking, that is ridiculous. That's never going to happen in the United States, certainly not within my lifetime. So... Um, you know, barring some other cataclysmic event involving guns. And mass shootings are not cataclysmic events anymore at this point, you know, we're, we're just so used to them and they're so routine that they just kind of, we, we just don't really care as a country about that versus our Second Amendment rights. That much has been made clear. So we're not getting rid of the Second Amendment, and I'm not saying we should, nor am I saying that people should, um, that we should do um, mandatory gun buybacks in the United States. I would actually like to see something like that, but I know that's also just not a reality, both ideologically and, and in terms of uh, our Constitution. So we're not going to do that. So is there anything we can do to make things safer? Because it, you know when a mass shooting happens and people are outraged and children have died and things are at their emotional you know, worst, um, people want something to be done. They don't want to continue to see mass shootings happen. And it is a uniquely American phenomenon. It does not happen in other countries anywhere near the rate that it happens in the United States. So say what you will about how we are statistically in a safer place in the United States than other countries, and that's true. And violent crime is down worldwide, not just in the United States. Um, you know, the guns are not helping or hurting one way or the other on that, right? So I'm so it's not on that basis that I'm making the argument, not on a statistical basis, that perhaps we should you know invoke some more controls or regulations about gun ownership. It's how do we prevent or put some realistic barriers and some realistic regulations in place that make it harder for potential mass shooters and, you know, clearly, notably, clinically insane people from getting guns, getting their hands on these on these high-powered weapons. And my proposal is a licensing system similar to how we license cars. It is not a federal program, every state has their own licensing program it's that, they, that they administer themselves, but they are required to do state licensing of motor vehicles. Different classes of motor vehicles have different licenses and different requirements. I think different types of guns should have similar regulations in terms or similar licensing uh, requirements. So you have, like, say, and that and, and is just arbitrary. It doesn't have to be done this way, but, say, pistols versus rifles versus machine guns versus high-caliber weapons, right, versus, say, shotguns. I mean, you could have different classes for these things, um, and, but I would leave it up to the gun Uh, people who are well-versed in how to do that to break down what the categories should be and what the testing should be. There should be theoretical testing or, or, you know, written tests, and there should be practical testing, and there should be education, Like You should have to go with classes in order to learn how to use guns in the same way 100% across the board in the United States, we have all agreed that vehicles, motor vehicles, should be regulated this way. None of us even question this unless you're a sovereign citizen or some person who's on the economic down and outs and you can't afford to get a license or something. Those are usually the arguments behind why people don't want to comply with regulations to get a driver's license, right? Why do you have to do that? Because you're sitting behind uh, you know a vehicle that is that weighs you know two or three tons, if not more, and is capable of mass murder i mean you you could actually do a whole lot of damage to structure and to people it, behind the wheel of a car or a truck if you don 't know what you 're doing so it has been made part of our society that we regulate that freedom of movement, which is a human right it 's such a human right it's not even it 's not even listed in the Bill of rights it 's so basic. Uh, But it is a human right, the right to travel, the right to transport or to move around. Um, And we regulate that right. Like, we regulate all the rights that we have. You know, there aren't any rights we have that are not regulated in one fashion or another. So uh, my proposal is to regulate guns this way so as to kill two birds with one stone in that you kill the education component by having to educate the person on the gun before they're going to be able to, to have ownership of it and use it. And you um, are putting a filtering system in place that will catch out, it, you know, visibly insane people or p- suicidal people are being, will, put, will you put more of a time uh, wait period in there uh, where you're introducing, you know, any sort of break or barrier between them and, and their, their potential uh, act of suicide. And you make it a, a better chance of saving that person's life, actually. So it handles, it would help deal with some of that suicide uh, statistic. Um, But more importantly, it would let everybody else know that if you got a gun and you're walking around with it, we know if you're licensed to use it, that you actually do know how to use it. And I think that is uh, important. I think that's very important. So, uh, because you're dealing with a tool or an implement whose only purpose is to kill or cause great physical harm to another human being. That is why guns were invented. This is a non-controversial point. So uh, so you better know how to use that thing, and you better know how to secure it, and you better know how to load it and unload it without hurting yourself or other people. And n- right now, there is no guarantee that you would be, that That just because you can go buy a gun, that any of that would be true. And I think it should be true. And um, And I think, you know, that gun activists and people who know about guns who are educated in them and I know a few of them would be behind this because you know you want people who are who who know what they're doing with this. So that's my idea on it at this point. It doesn't take away rights. It it restricts them based on, you know, like the same way that cars do and that's really not a whole lot of a restriction at all at the end of the day and it results in safer, you know, a safer situation. So Um, that's my modest proposal. Nick C. If I understand correctly, the vast majority of Sea Org members live on base. Clearwater, Los Angeles, Hemet, etc. Relatively few are posted at various orgs in places other than Clearwater and Los Angeles. Mostly class 5 orgs, right? I'm curious what life is like for people in the latter category compared to those who live on base. Do people stay in the same posts for a long time, or are they periodically rotated back to base? Do people like those posts? It has to feel like a welcome change after living on base, at least to some people. Does the Sea Org use any particularly stringent criteria in deciding who gets to go off base for an extended period of time? What are some of the tools the Sea Org uses to keep the off-base brains well-washed and unclogged by living in the WAG world? Okay, Nick. Thanks for the question. And what you're talking about here are network personnel, and um, this is um, a, a posting, a kind of posting. In every Class Five Org, you're absolutely right. At the city level, churches of Scientology, which we also call Class Five Orgs, that's what they're, that's how they're referred to, because they deliver up to Class Five services. Um, if you've watched my other videos, you, you get all how all this works. Um, that those outer orgs, right, you have Sea Org bases and then you have these outer orgs the, at all the different cities, Denver, Milano, you know, uh, Stuttgart, um, you know, St. Paul, etc., right, city-level churches, um, those have like four or five mandatory postings that have to be filled by Sea Org members. And, you know, I say mandatory postings, they're all supposed to be filled, but they rarely, rarely are fully uh, posted. Usually when ideal orgs open up, they somehow manage to get those posts filled with Sea Org members. Um, And within a year or two, usually they've been plucked out and moved on or, or transferred or something like that, but not always. And sometimes people can be on these network posts for a long time. Networks refer to a kind of um, junior senior situation in, in the Scientology hierarchy. Networks are Sea Org members posted at the city level churches, so they're not you know, on the two-and-a-half or the five-year contracts, like the staff members are, they are Sea Org members. They're there on the billion-year contract, right? They're, they're, they're working their whole life in the Sea Org, but they're posted at the city-level church to keep an eye on the place for management and report back compliance and observations. Networks, networks are there for observation and compliance. So uh, they're the eyes and ears of management on the ground, so that if the staff are saying one thing, if the network comes in and says another thing, uh, well, it's probably the network who's telling us the truth because that's the Sea Org member on the ground. They're more trusted than the staff are. And the networks um, operate under different zones or, of, of, uh, or subjects, or different, different topics. There's a flag banking officer who is in charge of all the bank accounts, for example, and he runs the finance lines of the, of the local church. He sets up the bank accounts. He's the, he's the signatory on them. Any checks that get written, he has to sign off on them. He basically acts as a little bank for the church, right? Then you have a flag representative who is management's representative, the, the management of the church. Like I used to do org management, and a lot of times we would order the flag rep to look into something, tell us what you see, or tell us what 's going on, or go ask the staff member why they haven't answered my telexes. <laughs> we would do that sometimes, um, or sometimes a one network would get orders, and a flag rep would get a cross policing you know, to to make sure that network does what they're ordered to do. So you get, you know, you get all kinds of little dynamics going on here, but the basic idea is that they're eyes and ears. So who are you going to send? Well, you're going to send the people you're going to trust. So you're going to sec check them. You're going to give them security checks, right? Interrogatories on the e-meter, and you're going to ask them lots of sharp and pointed questions about are they planning on getting up to no good while they're out there? And if they've been out there, you sometimes pull them back. Every, you know, year or so, they might get—it's not a scheduled thing. It's just sort of on average, maybe every year or so, they get pulled back to the base for a few days and get kind of raked over the coals and reminded of who they are and who they work for and what's going on because we know that they've been out there in that real world for a while and they might get tainted by some of the exposure to it. And they might be, you know, watching some internet porn, and they might be doing this and that and the other thing. But as long as they don't go too far off the rails, generally they're given a pass and they get sent back out. But if they start looking up nasty stuff on the internet, right, they're watching my videos or they're watching Scientology in the Aftermath or something, oh, they're going to be in all kinds of trouble. So this is all brought to the surface through sec checking. That's how this is controlled. Um, They also could do a lighter version of that where they're just made to write their overts and withholds. do what's called an OW write-up where the overts are their sins, right? And withholds are the things they're withholding. So you get them to sit, you sit them down in a room. You, You call them back to LA, let's say, and you sit them in a room and you give them a ream of paper and you say, get to writing, son. And, uh, you know, a day or two later, you come back and they've written a sheaf of stuff and you go stick them on a meter and say, did you, did you write everything down? Did we miss anything? And if the meter's clean and the needle is floating, then they're good to go, right? I mean, that's how much trust they put in the e-meter, <laughs> the silly fools. <laughs> anyway, so, um, yeah, so that is how networks are kind of dealt with. They're usually given specialist training in order to be network staff they have to um, meet their network opposites um, you know that kind of thing because like what happens is you have a a flag rep for example in the org and the program's chief at the management level is giving orders to the flag rep all the time and the flag rep is also sending up reports and observations Uh, and they send it to the programs chief. And then you have a flag rep for the Western United States or for the continental area, and that person's the one who's responsible for the flag rep's well-being and function and make sure they're doing their job and doing it right. So if the programs chief has a problem with the flag rep, they'll go to the flag rep for for the continental area and say, hey, this flag rep's screwing up, I'm not getting answers from them, or it looks like they're not doing their job or whatever, and, you know, can you pull them up and slap them around and and get them back in order? And Mm And, um, and maybe, they, maybe they get them corrected locally at the local org, or they pull them up to the management uh, area to get them sorted out that way. Okay, and as far as which networks there are, there's a flag rep, which I told you about. There's a flag banking officer, FBO. There's an estates manager, which is usually the guy who literally is taking care of the building. I usually want those guys to be C-Org, but that's gone on and off. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not C-Org. Same with the FBOs. They're not always C-Org, or they always haven't had to be Sea Org in the past. I think they do now, since it has to do with money. And of course, the flag reps are always Sea Org. And then you have the LRH Communicator. That's another network, which has off and on been Sea Org. Maybe right now it's not, but when I left, it was. Um, And the R-H communicator is responsible for implementing L. Ron Hubbard's policies and tech standardly in the organization. And that mainly means that they clean his office, and they kind of run around and, and work on recruiting new staff. They end up being over personnel more than anything else. But their function is to ensure that every area of the organization is actually operating exactly on what Hubbard wrote and said in his policies and bulletins, which I find hilarious considering that all those red volumes and green volumes of policies and tech right now aren't even in the orgs. They've pulled them all out, and they're not even using them. Apparently, for at least the last year, that's been the case. So I don't know what the LRH communicators are enforcing, but it's uh, not anything written by all Hubbard these days. Uh, let's see, is there any other networks? Oh, yes, of course, the DSA network, the OSA network, the Director of Special Affairs. And um, that is, again, sometimes a Sea Org member, many times not. It uh, doesn't have to be at this point, and, and I don't think as a practice it, it has to be Sea Org anymore. Um, and, yeah, those are the networks I can remember off the top of my head. So hope that gives you some idea of what that's all about. As far as people there are not people bucking to become network staff. It's not fun because it's a 24-7 thing where management could call you at two in the morning and make you go down to the org or make you go wake somebody up and do stuff. I mean, it's kind of a kind of a thankless job in that sense. You are away from the base, though. So really, your life is more chill. Um, and um, And depending on how much they're reporting on the staff and how much they're making the statistics go up, is generally how they're regarded by management as to whether they're useful or not, right? Are the numbers going up or are the numbers going down? If the numbers are going down, they don't care how great your reports are or how great your observation is or how stupendously accurate you are about telling them how horrible everything is. They're going to think you're a horrible network staff member because you're not making the numbers go up. So that's at the end of the day what what everybody's always judged on is the numbers. So there you go. Francis Curry, When is sec-checking done? I know it's an integral part of the RPF, but do all Scientologists potentially get a taste of it if they screw something up? Is it integrated into the bridge at any point, like to proceed to OTN, you need X hours of sec-checks? Is it just for Sea Org members, or can staff get it? I assume the public are not subject to it. Okay, Francis, thanks for the question. Uh, Actually, no, public are subject to it. Every Scientologist gets sec-checking. You get sec-checks, and you get sec-checks, and you get sec-checks. Everybody gets sec-checks. That's how it works in the world of Scientology. And um, there are two kinds of sec-checks okay, and this is the important dividing line for security checking, is you get sec checks as part of your regular auditing going up the bridge. And there are all, there's many levels of the bridge where you're going to get sec checks. And I'll tell you about those in a second. And that kind of sec check is auditing. So it's not used against you. In other words, it's not like, uh, well, then there's the second kind, which is investigatory security checking. And that's where an investigation is being done. And that's where it can be used against you. So the difference is that it, the, the, the procedure is exactly the same in both ways that it's used, except for what happens after the session. If you go in, to a regular SEC check that's just being done for auditing purposes, then the auditing gets done, the questions get asked, you very invasive personal questions, but after the session's over, no reports get written, you don't go to the ethics officer, the case supervisor just says, okay, that's good, signs it all off, and away you go, and unless you're admitting to committing literal crimes in present time, you're going to sail through okay, if it comes up that you are actually committing real-world crimes, like you're embezzling money from your company, or you're committing adultery on your wife or husband, right, or your spouse, um, or, you know, engaging in some form of, you know, child abuse or something, I mean, then the case supervisor is probably going to go, hey, this guy's got an ethics problem, and stop the auditing at that point and ship you over to ethics, and the ethics officer is going to have a little conversation with you and put you on a meter and do an interview with you and get you to cough up the things you already said in your confidential session so the ethics officer can then deal with it and deal with you and get you to stop committing crimes because the church isn't so much concerned about the crimes you're committing as they are the potential PR backflash on the church. If you were to be exposed, you know, in public, right? That could be a problem. So that's how you could end up in ethics from a regular security check that you get as the regular course of your auditing. Otherwise, you're left alone and you just move on up the bridge, right? You'll get sec checked um, at grade two. If you haven't been sec-checked yet, definitely by the time you get to grade two, that's all about security checking and overts and withholds, and you'll be getting a lot of it there. And then after you go Uh, get up to the state of clear, there's a little sec check in there. And then before you go on to the OT levels, you have what's called OT eligibility. And those are sec checks. And that's public, staff, C-Org, everybody has to go through all those sec checks. That's just part of getting up the bridge. And there's, and if you take, once you start on the OT levels, you have to do one, two, and three, boom, boom, boom. There's no breaks on one, two, and three. So you get your OT eligibility, done and you're cleared to start the, sec, to the OT levels, you do OT 1, 2, and 3. And then if you take a break for any reason, you go home, take six months off, pay you know, make, up, make money so you can pay for your OT 4. You come back, you're going to have to do a new verification, a new OT eligibility sec check, and they're going to check you over again. And it probably will go fairly quickly, but they are still going to charge you for it and do it. And then you do your OT 4, let's say, And then you finish, and you don't have the money to get onto OT-5, so again, you go home, you're gone for a year, you come back, you're gonna get another eligibility sec check, right? You're gonna do that one. And then let's say you finish OT-5 and you go straight to FLAG, and you get onto your OT-6. Well, you're gonna get an eligibility sec check because you went from a lower org to FLAG, and so for that reason, they're gonna give you another verification sec check. So basically any excuse they can to charge you for the SEC checks, they're going to charge you, right? Because then you get onto OT7. Let's say you finally make it to 7 and you go home and you're auditing on OT7 every day, multiple times a day, every six months you have to go back to FLAG and do what's called a refresher. And that's another SEC check. (laughs) (laughs) So there's lots and lots of sec checking for all Scientologists. Now, if you're getting an investigatory sec check, the second way of doing sec checks, then that means they're investigating your ass and that means that there's probably trouble ahead for you. And you go in and you get the sec check, same procedure, but when you come out a report is written detailing all the things you said, and you go to the ethics officer and you have to deal with that, right? It doesn't matter what you were saying in your SEC check, whether it was good, bad, or sideways, whether it was present time criminal activity or not. That It doesn't matter what it is. If you're being investigated, if it's an investigatory SEC check, then you're going to go see the ethics officer afterwards, and it's not confidential. And they tell you at the beginning, I'm not auditing you, right? This is an HCO-style confessional or an investigatory style confessional, right? And then you go and you do the procedure. So that's kind of how it all works, and I hope that clarifies some things for you. Stephen Lane, is it possible that if all of its followers just practiced the major points of the religion, Scientology wouldn't be so bad? Not that I agree with it. I'm just wondering if it's possible that Scientology by itself doesn't indicate that the people involved have to be basically enslaved, abused, imprisoned, or kidnapped. Is it possible that the people in charge have created this craziness on their own and added it to the practice? Don't misunderstand my statement because I think this religion is bonkers. The human element is terribly abusive and should be punished for their actions. Just a curious observation. Okay, Stefan, thanks for the question. Um, And the answer basically is no. It is still an abusive um, practice because Scientology auditing, by its very nature, is uh, unlicensed therapists treating one another, right? People who have no concept of the brain or neurology or the mind or psychology who are tampering with other people's trauma and stress. And they're doing it in a radically bizarre fashion, right, where they are inducing trance, they're driving people back into their past as though the past is the sole and only reason for their trauma or stress reactions when that's not the case when they they have this entirely made up hierarchy of problems that exist in your mind like ingrams and locks and secondaries none of these things exist they're just labels they're just models for trauma and stress uh, but hubbard says they literally exist and that you have mental charge floating in the air around you. That's why I always make these little little hand gestures with this stuff, right? Here's an incident. It's literally right here. It's a piece of, of energy, balled up energy, right? And through Scientology auditing, you're supposed to dissipate that energy and release it so that you have converted it from n theta to theta, right? These are all just nonsense constructs that Hubbard invented out of thin air. And people buy into this stuff as though any of it is real when it's not. So what are you treating when you go into a Dianetics or Scientology session? A myth, a fantasy, that's what you're treating. And, and, and you're using techniques that can themselves be psychologically damaging to people, if not outright destructive or fatal to their health, like the purification rundown. That entire purification process of uh, going in and detoxing yourself in a sauna by sweating for five hours a day with literally a handful of vitamins and niacin up to 5,000 milligrams a day, that is toxic for your body. And it is encouraged that if you are exhibiting heat exhaustion symptoms, that you continue to do the process because clearly it's working on you. I mean, the whole thing is based on the pseudoscientific principle that drug deposits are stored in the fatty tissues of your body and stay there for the rest of your life. And we know through biochemistry that is an utter lie. There is nothing true about that. Alcohol does not stay in your system. It's water-soluble. LSD does not stay in your system. It's water-soluble. Pot can stay in your system if you are smoking a tremendous amount of it, and even it is cleared out if you take a break for a few weeks, right? Your body is its own detoxification system. It doesn't need you going into a sauna and using sweat, which, by the way, is the least efficient method of detoxification, uh, to get all these supposed drugs and crap out of your system. It just, it's just not true. So, you know, again, what are you treating? What are you doing? What what is it you're supposed to be improving when you keep addressing things that aren't actually wrong with you, but they say that that's what's wrong with you. They insist that that's what's wrong with you. You know, they invent these mental mechanisms called service facsimiles and uh, ARC breaks and 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 goals, problem masses. <laughs> I mean, these things are just these, like, invented constructs that, you know, that are just ridiculous. So, yeah. So, you know, is the, is the standard practice of Scientology a good thing and is it necessary in order to, you know, help people out in their life and give them a, give them a break and, and let them, you know, improve their existence? N- not really, you know, to the degree that there is, um, you know, a, a placebo effect to the degree that there is motivated reasoning and to the degree that people are sorting out their cognitive dissonance with Hubbard's constructs rather than actually going and learning about real psychology and real neurology and, and what these things really consist of, uh, we get these nonsense explanations from over 50 years ago that don't have any scientific basis to them at all. And that is, at the end of the day, what Scientology really is. So, no, I don't endorse it at all. And I don't think it's just because Hubbard added some crazy to it or Miscavige riveted it up because of his own psychotic tendencies. That's not what makes Scientology bad. Those are the only, the, those, those just ramp it up a little bit more. It's already just full, a bag of crazy, okay? That's what Scientology actually is. And this is why you see me rail against independent Scientologists is, you know, they can go believe whatever the hell they want, but it's still idiotic to believe it if it's not true, And it's not. And that really is all there is to it. So, anyway, thanks for asking the question. Okay. And that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and watching me blather on here. Really appreciate it. If you enjoyed my answers, if you think they are entertaining, informative, and educational, then please consider joining me on Patreon because uh, that is what keeps the lights on and the show going here. It's what allows me to keep doing this work and put content out here for you guys. And um, yeah, and I could really use the support. So, and, and for those who are supporting me right now, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You are literally enabling me to do this for you. So, all right, guys. See you next week. Bye-bye.